Mark Forsman. Thank you. And Ken Sallows. The brown jacket brigade. <laughs> now, what we'll do is I'll ask, uh, I'll ask them a few questions, talk about the film a bit, and then hopefully you'll come up with some questions and uh, issues that you would like to raise as well. So we want to make this as interactive as possible. So, Mark, can I ask you first of all, what inspired you to write and create this film well, in the first um, place? In 95, I read about the uh, I read a book called The Wallamo Pine by um, James Woodford, which was about the discovery of that rare tree. And uh, I thought to myself at the time, geez, I'd love to go and see that tree. And um, but you're not allowed to. It's held in a you know it's closely guarded secret. And next year, I went off to film school, and um, well, Australian Film and TV School. And, and and then a few years later, I started writing a film in the snow, and with similar themes to this, and it just became too big. You know, people were falling through the ice and all that sort of stuff. And so then it suddenly occurred to me, hey, I can get a similar film in the canyons of the Blue Mountains with the Wallamo pine tree and it's going to be a hell of a lot cheaper and um, no ice. <laughs> and, and no... Go on. Ben suffered, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Except Ben, yeah. I think that water was six or eight degrees when he, when he had to swim in it. I was going to ask you, no actors suffered in the making of the film? <laughs> Interestingly, just the... Um, we had to abseil everyone in the crew, with the exception of the editor who was back in Sydney, <laughs> um, down into canyons. Like two days, everyone, I think there was 20 people, were abseiled down into these canyons. And the only person that hurt themselves was I fell over and hurt my elbow. So that was it. <laughs> so uh, the creative process, we <laughs> do it every time. Wasn't there some story that the safety officer went to sleep as well? Uh, there was a time, actually on the second day, when a, um, it was a pneumatic sort of lens cleaner... The, 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 um, the safety officer didn't want to get out of his car because he didn't believe anything go wrong on a film shoot. <laughs> so he was sitting up in the car park and anyhow, this can exploded and flung around in the air and burnt our um, second, uh, our focus puller. But <laughs> it doesn't count as a wilderness adventure, that one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the, uh, the actual production because this is not a, a normally funded production no. as such from Film Finance or Screen Australia or whatever. So how did you get the wherewithal to uh, make the film in the first place? Well, what we did, um, I had the harebrained idea of doing a workshop with these, these five actors, so I cast the actors, then went ahead. We did improvised um, or character-based improvisations to work out characters. I had a, an, a loose idea of the plot but wanted the characters to be archetypically different and wanted to make sure they were really real because, you know, as you know, this is not a thriller or a sort of horror film where they meet the bogeyman in the bush. It relied on the characters breaking down. And um, from that, those work, those, those improvisations, which went on for about six weeks, me and Stephen Davis, the other writer, went away and wrote the script. And the actors are young. We wanted to keep them. The process of finding a distributor and getting film financing would have taken years. So we thought we'd raise the money privately and went off and um, made the film. And we didn't even have enough money to sh finish the film at the time, which was a bit silly and subsequent to shooting the film and editing the film we raised some more money in it but the whole thing's been bloody difficult I wouldn't recommend anyone to do it this way <laughs> you know have all the finance have the distribution beforehand um, but you know the great advantage was that I actually got to stay in Bellevue Hill in Sydney in one of the investors apartment for nothing which was fantastic had a <laughs> wonderful view of the harbour and also of Bondi Beach as well around the other way which is the best place I've ever stayed in in Sydney <laughs> Ken, while you've got the floor, can you talk about the challenges you faced in editing this film? 
Well, as Mark said, I wasn't involved with the Blue Mountains. I'm a Melbourne person and I've never been to the Blue Mountains in my life. And the first time I ever went there was during the shoot of this film. That's one day and it's an extraordinary place. Um, but really is quite, uh, you think going to the Dandenongs is pretty special. But uh, uh, how many people here have been to the Blue Mountains? I, that's more than I thought, but it's quite extraordinary. So I was actually put in... Um, in a very, very tiny, initially a very tiny editing room in Sydney, again for financial reasons, which is about the size of a toilet, and uh, at Fox Studios. I think it's the smallest room they could find. And um, <laughs> well, unfortunately, when the film finished shooting, they came back to Sydney. And there was a lot of questions all the way through of, um, in particular, the scene where Dylan dies. Um, there are two big scenes in the film that were quite difficult, one which we infamously always call Scene 51, which means nothing to anyone other than us, which is when Dylan confesses that sort of, uh, he was there when... Um, the, what's his name? Carl's, Carl's brother. brother died. Yeah. And then also when Dylan dies. And all, the day that I actually went up to the Blue Mountains, and so we... Mark was even still talking about there that he never really had a handle on what should actually happen in that scene. And we were actually speculating, you know, I was saying he has to die. You know, there's no way Noni can walk off and leave him because that's just too cold. You can't do that. That's just an awful way of doing things. And so eventually <coughs> we just concluded that he had to die. And then also that was a scene that there was a couple of pickups weren't there later on. Mm. So, yeah, that we actually sort of weren't convinced at sort of certain things. So they were the primary most difficult things in the film to do, that sort of the, the drama scenes. And I've always found in any editing I do that the... The emotional drama scenes are a lot harder than action scenes. Action scenes are actually quite logical because you go from one, two, three, four. There's a logical process of going forwards. Whereas drama, you've got so many intangibles. Um, and you want to be in the right place at the right time. So whether or not I got it right in this film or not is up to debate. But sort of, it's kind of after 36 years of doing this sort of stuff, you're kind of trying to hone that idea all the time. And it's not something you can't really teach people it's actually sort of just a, a process of learning over years of actually trying to do it some some kids actually these days are quite remarkable in editing but sort of um, I find that sort of I had a long apprenticeship and worked on a lot of films in the 70s like Blacksmith and so on and um, uh, learnt from some very good editors not that I say that I'm brilliant now but sort of it's it's uh, I'm digressing aren't I no no keep going um, and also the other great thing in relation to this film was that sort of we had a lot of uh, people who watched the film in various stages, such as Kate Shortland, Tim White and various other mm. people, it's friends in Sydney, and all offering comments which can be dangerous at times because you can always sort of think that they have got wonderful ideas, whereas yours are terrible and it's uh, a process of convincing yourself of what's worthwhile. And yet again, the other great thing was Amanda Brown's music, which I think is quite wonderful. That's sort of um, Amanda Brown was in um, a band called The Go-Betweens and um, <coughs> she's like a cat mm. to, to be around. She sort of kind of just curls up and sort of <laughs> quite an extraordinary person. But anyway. Yeah. But I think the, uh, the challenge in the edit was actually getting the point of view of each of those five characters. It seems simple, but they're always in the, as it were, the same room all the time. And to keep mm. each, the interest in each character going, I mean, if you found that, but uh, <laughs> it is difficult. Mm. And, and that was the challenge of the edit, I thought. Well, as a psychological study and as a, a series of close-ups as well as uh, sequences yeah. that happen during the film, it's important to keep each character developing as you go through yeah. the film. Mm. Yeah. 
And the other, uh, probably the hardest thing in the making of the film was to find locations to marry to each character's sort of emotional backdrop. So we, after the script was written, I went up there eight times actually with a cinematographer, drove her insane, looking for locations. And, uh, you know, they were either too far away or they're too difficult or what have you. In the end, we found, like we made that sort of canyon up from, you know, a hodgepodge of different locations, but the key was to find the, uh, the, the right backdrop for that, that emotion at the time. Another strange thing is that sort of, even though I'm six foot five, I actually suffer from vertigo. And um, when I went up there, I actually sort of went to the edge of the canyon. I couldn't get within about 20 feet of the edge of the thing because it is so deep. Yeah. Those canyons are extraordinarily yeah. deep. And you go, whoa, I don't want to be here. <laughs> it's just sort of, you look out and go, okay, fine, I'll go back down. <laughs> go back to the hotel, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> just talking about the cinematography and Justine Kerrigan's work. Um, was she working largely with one camera or did you use two or three for coverage? No, just one camera, one 16mm, or well, Super 16. And the other thing is it was, it was in midwinter. We shot two years ago or two and a bit years ago now. And um, very low light. And 16mm is even harder because it's a smaller lens, a smaller aperture. And we had to open it up wide to get in the amount of light that we needed, which meant that we had focus problems. We were always on the widest opening we could get. Which made the whole thing really difficult because there was only, you know, there's 10 hours of daylight but only probably 7 hours of cinema daylight. Mm. Uh, so it meant we had to, had to go very quick. Mm. But, you know, that was fun too. It was good to be pushed. We want some uh, questions from the audience but I just want to ask one more thing perhaps and hopefully there'll be some uh, responses from uh, all of you up there. Um, distri distributing the film. Now, the film's, I mean, it's played here before uh, yeah. at Acme. It's going to be playing at the George? No, no. What happened is, um, well, uh, in everything we did with this film was a little bit us up. We got the TV sale first with Movie Network, then we got DVD with Mad Men, and um, they weren't sure whether it would make enough money at cinema, so they subsequently decided to let us do the, do the cinema. And um, let you. That's <laughs> Look, we, but they're, they're great distributors. We'll take all the money, but <laughs> they just got the sale to Qantas last week, so we're That's very happy. Yeah. But um, what it meant is that we had to put money, out. and we actually did well at the Chevelle in Sydney. But because we're not a Palace film, uh, it just meant that they want to they wanted to put on their their own distributed film. So as an independent, you actually have very little uh, leverage mm. at the cinema. So we decided not to go ahead in Melbourne. Just <laughs> We had the publicity in Sydney. It didn't quite translate down here and uh, we didn't have the money to put more up. So, look, it's a shame, but um, that's the plight of the small, the small Aussie film. It's, it's, sorry, again, it's like the old days of the Brighton Town Hall. I remember going to the Brighton Town Hall and seeing surf movies. They were always sort of roadshowed by sort of the filmmakers. Mm. They'd turn up in a van and you know, they actually sort of eventually sort of got to the stage where they actually, the big advent was to actually have bands playing. And they actually made money out of it. You know, bands like sort of Tully or Tam and Chad would actually play along with these movies, and you'd get a certain sort of audience. And this is a little bit more, um, again, digressing, but that's at the level we're still at in Australian cinema. Mm. And it's sort of, um, you know, people, if you're willing to do that, well and good, but it's, it's hard work. Uh, I actually, yesterday I bought a DVD of the Channel Jimmy Blacksmith, which, as I said, I was the assistant editor on, and I just watched the um, extras, as you do, because you, know, you want to see what's going on. There's a, interviews with Fred, Skepsi, Ian Baker, Tommy Lewis's lead actor, and Brian, who was the editor and so on. And Brian actually said about Blacksmith when it was released, and that was the second highest budgeted film ever made in this country in 1977. The highest was Eliza Fraser. Blacksmith was cost $1.2 million to make, which in those days was a lot of money. 
Brian actually said, and it was a wonderful comment, when the film was first released in Australia, uh, he was sitting in the audience and sort of, the audience felt, he, sort of, he knew the audience was with it until halfway through in the, the film, which is the big murder scene in the film, the audience couldn't cope with it and they actually sort of lost interest. He subsequently saw the film in England and in England the film was better received than it was in Australia. And yet it's now regarded as sort of a cinema classic, but it didn't do very well in Australia at all, for what it's worth. Mm. It's an interesting comment about the, the way Australian films are received in Australia by Australian mm. audiences, and it is so variable. Mm. Um, and the other thing, of course, is uh, Australian films don't have the marketing budgets and, and the wherewithal to get mm. the word out there about films that, that Hollywood can do so easily. Yeah. Well, they spend the money, but it's a sort of a... It's all pre-packaged. Well, pre-packaged is not the right word, but sort of it's the, mar- the marketing campaign's done already and it's actually just translates straight to Australia, which is regarded as a minor territory. See, our investors will get their money back on DVD, TV and then international sales in the same area. So, mm. And subsequent to that, the, the festivals it's done, Mark, have actually won an award in Shanghai, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah won an environment award and went, went in, it was in official competition in Sao Paulo. So I think it'll do well overseas. Which is I'm an not interesting <laughs> no, but it's an interesting statement perhaps about Australian films in Australia. Questions from the audience. Ken's too tall to do that. <laughs> but I'm sitting down. <laughs> Making it express the idea of the script astutely or succinctly, if you know what I mean? N- or do n- you have a leap of faith in the editor that he's got an idea of what you want, if you know what I mean? I had, yeah, the latter. I had the leap of faith in Ken. And uh, what he would do is uh, he would cut... Like, when I got back from the shoot, he'd cut the film together in a certain way. So we worked from there. So, in effect, the script was dispensed with because you're just dealing with the footage you've got. And, um, no, look, the reason you have an editor is because you, you trust his view on the film. If... And when you're actually doing that initial assembly when the director's not around, you're hopefully working on the intention of what the script's about. Yeah. It's not actually just sort of trying to make the film go from there to there. It's actually trying to... You're, you're reading the, the things that are happening behind what is going on in the dialogue or in the action and so on. You're actually trying to invent the, 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 the subplot story or whatever. And, and see, the key thing for me is this is my first feature. You know, I'd made some docos, but Ken had done 30, I think, before this. So I picked a very experienced editor. I, I think I harangued him for a couple well, of years We first this. met when I actually did my famous, what I, or infamous chopper tour of the east coast of Australia where I actually did talks in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And I was Atlanta. a sort of groupie, <laughs> Ken, Ken Sellers groupie after that. But um, I wanted, yeah, so he's experienced to just cast a different eye on the film. I mean, you know, like the Coen brothers, for instance, edit their own film, but there's two of them. Um, there's very few filmmakers that edit their own films. James Roderick. Yes, <laughs> Roderick James. James, Roderick yeah. James, sorry. I also wanted to know how much the workshopping you did with the actors drove their characters, or were they sort of set in concrete before? No, no, that completely drove their characters. But I cast sort of people who are archetypically a bit like that. Ryan Johnson, who's the Dylan character, is a crowd pleaser. You know, he, he, that's who he is. Um, so it sort of just was a combination of who they were and the, and the workshopping, yeah. Okay, I think there was another question up there. Uh, am, I, oh, am I reading too much into it when I th- see the whole thing as an allegory? The Wallamai pine is something very valuable, 
something very elusive, and the only person who actually gets there, Dylan, has to die. So that, this yeah. is like a Greek tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's, I, I think it's got that symbolic level for sure. I read one of the reviews. Uh, we had some good reviews, one not very good review, but one of the good reviews saw it as an allegory about Generation Y wandering aimlessly through um, so, you know, society, not knowing where they're going. Yeah. And, and the, I mean, I, it was a conscious choice that these characters are about 20, early 20s, which is, you know, I did silly things at that age, went off somewhere, not with any idea where I was going, but in the process of going somewhere, I learned something. Um, I had a bunch of friends who left Sydney one day heading to Broken Hill without anything and ended up at the Blue Mountains and a few things went wrong to them. So that is a sort of a middle-class Sydney journey a little bit. Hey, thanks. No worries. <laughs> I found it interesting too about the strength of the two women um, in the film. I, I think they are much stronger as characters than the three men. That's, I think, certainly the Tony character who starts off as quite abrasive becomes. Uh, they, they both. They both become change. stronger. Yeah, they, they change. They change quite radically. Mm. You know, in the, the both of their roles. Okay. One's unlikable and theoretically becomes likable. The other one's sort of they awful, yeah. almost like cross. But it shows you how you can read films in different ways yeah. and, and see different characters, as in the allegorical question before. Now we have another question down here. Yep. Yeah. Um, Ken's already mentioned the, the beautiful setting in the Blue Mountains. Um, and uh, I, I noticed that the film sort of allowed the location to speak very loudly for itself. There was, there was a lot of um, lingering and dwelling mm. on the, the scenery and some, some fantastic footage of that. Mm. It, did, you, did you intend at the beginning for, for, the, uh, for the location to be you know, s such a loud part of the movie or did that develop when you... No, no, definitely. The yeah. um, it was always the the landscape was the sixth character that would that would tear them apart. Ironically, there though, in some ways, there was a version of a, a cut version of the film that was with hardly any landscape shots in it at all, and it became almost like a stage play. It was sort yeah. of um, just wrong. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Sorry. No, but that's exactly right. You know, I wasn't that sure how much to put in or not, and. Very subjective. This stuff. You just. You, I, I think you learn with experience. Do you, do you, Ken? No. <laughs> okay, you don't. <laughs> we regress. That's okay. <laughs> Two things. First of all, the opening sequence, the uh, animation, which yeah. looks incredible. And secondly, the title. Um, animated sequence. Look, it starts claustrophobically in a car without that animated sequence, and I wanted to give a sense that there was something beyond that tight scene in the car, you know, there's four people in a car, then in a servo, so something that said there was something more to come. Uh, I didn't expect it to be as beautiful as it came out, and it, everyone remarks, it is very beautiful. Mm. Um, the title, Monkey Puzzle, the tree, the wall of my pine, is part of that broad group of Oracaceae, uh, or connected to the Oracaceae family of trees, which is mainly uh, found in South America of which the monkey puzzle tree is part of that family. And um, it, the term was coined by an Englishman, a bit like the Rudyard Kipling-type character, who said, there's no way a monkey can climb down that tree. It's a monkey puzzle. And um, the Wallamo Pine has this bubbly bark, which makes it difficult for monkeys to climb down, apparently, but there are not monkeys out there. Um, but the title is oblique. We tried to explain it in the in the dialogue of the film and it became awfully didactic and actually that was in the script. I just didn't even shoot it. I just thought that's ridiculous. It's not going to work. Mm. Some people find it a bit too oblique. I think other people like it. It's it's one of those things. Mm. 
Ken, do you like the title? I, reckon, I think it's a great title. And just as an, another digression, I've actually got a wall of my pine in my backyard at Sandringham now. You can actually buy them. They're about pro- I think the botanical gardens of New South Wales have propagated them. They're about 100 bucks each. Actually, as an aside to that, when about three months ago we had the flyers produced and I was sitting on my desk and our office got broken into and the locksmith who came in saw the flyer and he went, that's not a story about looking for the Wallawai pine tree, is it? Which was funny to make that link. Anyhow, he was late 20s and he and his mates had actually headed out looking for the Wallawai pine and had got lost but nothing went wrong. So that was... That was quite amusing. And didn't have a film crew following, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, more questions from the audience. I'm sure there's more things you'd like to know. So the film's really two years from initial shoot, isn't it? Yeah. Incredible, isn't it? Uh, I think, look, normally a film, normally, films tend to be probably a year and a half, would that be right, Ken, from shoot to the screen? The quickest film that I've ever worked on that's a cinema release film that to be from actually being finished in other words you know you go uh, finish shoot finish picture out do the sound and the music then print the film the quickest film I've ever worked on in my life was Proof and that was two weeks probably because it was sort of um, it had a hype about it and it, you know, it had to be finished to go to uh, director's fortnight did well there came back to um, Melbourne those were in the Melbourne Film Festival was at the Astor in, um, and then June and I always joked to Jocelyn and Linda and, and everybody involved that that film had so much hype about it that we could have stood on stage and pulled down our pants and farted and people would have applauded. You know, <laughs> it was just unbelievable. But it's quite often, um, it's quite often a year, year and a half later. It's all again from related. from once the film's finished. Yeah, that it's is. all related to marketing and sort of trying to sort of find a slot for it in the cinema and. Um, should you do the overseas festival route first, which is probably a good idea. Mm. Um, and Interestingly that Qantas have just snapped it up for the landscape quality, obviously in, in connection with the whole a, like a, Australia a, promotion. You know. A non, non-swearing version. Perhaps. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you have to pay for it. Modified for uh, air, <laughs> aircraft. I think you do. Question coming up. How many days did you actually spend filming? Uh, 28. Yeah, and then we had to find some more money, so that took another nine months. Then we uh, well, the process of sounded it. Yeah, sorry, the process, Mark. The process of editing was that sort of it was like any normal film, to like a, a better than rough cut, a hell of a lot better than a rough cut. And then, in some ways, the the process of actually finding the extra money was advantageous because you could actually sort of step back from a film and actually have another look at it in sort of you know a month or so's time. And actually go, okay, well, that actually wasn't quite right. Because you do get incredibly involved with a film. You see it endlessly, day after day after day, and you actually start not even looking at it. So, um, Was there a need to go and, and, and recapture any footage? Yeah, we had to do a, a couple of uh, pickups. Mm. But um, uh, it's funny, the sound mixer said to me, you never finish a film, you just abandon it. <laughs> and there's stuff I want to do now. <laughs> it's abandoned. <laughs> Interesting on that editing thing, I just read that um, um, Christopher Nolan, who did um, The Dark Knight, Batman, spent, was it Christopher Nolan? I think so, spent a year and a something editing that film. But the guy who's just finished Quantum of Solace, the, ba- the Bond film, yeah. had a very short time. And I, I, look, I don't know what the reviews are like on that film, but the inference was he didn't have, he only had a f- eight weeks to edit 
a Bond film, you need longer than eight weeks, you know. To do a film of that size, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's one of the shortest Bond films. I haven't seen it yet, but it's only 106 minutes, so I think there might be a reason for the short... (laughs) Quick edit. But uh, it's interesting you talk about editing films and about the time it takes to make a film. Um, When I spoke to Jack Thompson uh, about three or four weeks ago, the film Australia still hadn't been finished. No. Um, And uh, I know it's going to be ready for cinemas on the 26th of November, but I tell you what, it's going to be a close call. Baz Luhrmann does do that, though. I know that's a gel... This is the first... Again, editing, and I'm talking about editing because that's what I do, but it's the first film that Joel Bilcock hasn't cut for him. Um, uh, I don't know what the reason for that, but they have been working on it for a long, long time. Danny Cooper is one of the editors on it, and um, she sort of uh, sent me an email a few weeks ago sort of saying they'd moved the uh, sleeping bags into the editing room, so it's seven days a week. It's just nonsense when you're doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, so. and there were some extra pickups they had to do yeah. and, and reshoots and all oh, sorts of things. Yes, yeah. but we won't. We're you not can open up the can of worms with that, and I don't think I should actually start commenting. Actually, no, we'll <laughs> wait till the film's out there. Let's go back to Monkey Puzzle. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, this is your first feature film. Yeah. Are yeah. you now working on another one? I've got three scripts that I'm sort of one that I'm writing and two others that I'm sort of developing, but it, it's really hard, you know, to to. I guess I want to make a film that, that obviously gets to more people and that's hard. You, it's really got to fit into a genre, I think, now. We're a very genre-based industry and you've got to compete with the American uh, distribution. <clears throat> I think the free trade agreement destroyed the film industry, although no one said anything about it. But I'm convinced that the, the power of the, ex- of the exhibitor, they, they have deals with the distributor. So the cinema chain has deals with the, the distributor that just mean that there's a rolling product so it's very hard for an Australian to come in um, and, and cut through that. Interestingly, a cinema in a Sydney that uh, at the Ritz, Randwick Ritz, the guy loved the film, he wanted to show Monkey Puzzle, he said, but you need a half a million dollar uh, marketing budget. And that's the problem. <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, long story, but I think the problem for Australians is to find stories that are still relevant or iconically Australian but somehow uh, take a bit of the American model without becoming American but but trick the audience into saying, hey, this is a film that you guys normally love seeing but it's Australian. So on not a lot of money, I don't, you know, that's our challenge. It's a tough call. I suppose you can do one on Tasmanian cannibals. Oh, yes, they did. Don't agree. <laughs> There's another aside there. Another friend of mine, Brian McKenzie, is a documentary filmmaker and he was at the ABC, sort of in charge of uh, kind of like um, production there for a while. But I worked on a number of his Verite films in the 80s and that sort of stuff. And he's just completing a series of five half hours of um, like street life in India uh, that he's done with F- FFC or now Screen Australia Help. He went to England and Europe. Um, in what's what's now November, he went there in sort of August and tried to get interest in the projects there. And it, <laughs> it's a brilliant line. A guy from Iceland said to him, "Unfortunately, I'm not interested in your particular programs, but if you got anyone's any uh, films about aliens having sex, I'd be interested <laughs> in that." And immediately I thought, "Well, that film's already been made. It's called The Man Who Fell to Earth." So. Um, <laughs> Fair point. Ken, do you want to talk about the uh, the television program that you're working on at the moment? Oh, if anyone's interested, it's it's just a it's a fix up documentary on um, Jesse Martin. Uh, Channel Two will eventually screen it. 
Jesse Martin is the kid who sailed around the world by himself when he was 17 in 1999. Um, went on a second adventure with four others, four others in a yacht, and the theory was was that he was meant to, they were meant to make this documentary series and sort of travel the world. They raised about two million dollars to do this adventure. Uh, the, f the five kids on the boat, um, two were kicked off in Darwin, the two girls. They got another girl in Darwin. They basically made it to Thailand and gave it away. And sort of it's primarily the story, well, as I said, it was done six years ago. It's it bizarre because there's footage of the Bali bombings in it and, you know, they're all there at the time, you know, and you actually think, well, that's six years ago. It's extraordinary. But it's from what it originally sort of started off as, which was a almost like Leyland Brothers type sort of adventure sort of film to turn into this analysis of um, what actually went wrong. And the, the brave thing about the two filmmakers, uh, Jesse and Josh, are that you sit in the editing room with them and they're on the screen quite a lot and you actually talk to them, you're talking about them as almost totally different people. And you know, you're, so I'm saying, you're a little Hitler here, Jesse, and that sort of stuff. He said, yeah, I was. And they're quite, it's quite a remarkable process. It's like sort of going to... Um, a counselling workshop or something like that and actually being paid to actually cut a film about it. It's, it's a very strange thing. So we're only about halfway through. As I said, I was brought in as a fix-up person because they had done a cut themselves and it sort of didn't make sense, but you could see the intention was there. So um, hopefully that'll be on TV next year. Hmm. Yeah. Any more questions from the audience? Yeah. Yeah, um, David Stratton said the characters weren't uh, weren't believable. He didn't like the fires being lit in the Blue Mountains. Though, <laughs> there was that too. <laughs> but that was because smoke effects the, at the end. He didn't like the Blue Mountains. He lives in the Blue Mountains, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. But, but I think his primary concern was that I think he thought that it didn't make sense for Dylan to give up his girlfriend or not talk about his the girl that he just met, Pippa, to Carl because that's doesn't make sense my my line is simply that you know he he his whole history with carl had been around guilt and had been about not explaining things to carl so it was completely consistent you know at 20 you don't you don't work things out properly you actually do the wrong thing that's the point but obviously you know for for that that review i didn't build the case well enough and you know look that's probably valid i don't know some people like it some people don't that's how it is that's how it is. Quick question. We're in awards season at the moment. The AFI Awards are coming up next month and uh, uh, the IF Awards. Um, we didn't. We go in next year. Next year. That was, yeah. Yes, I yeah. thought that was the case. And the IF Awards on Thursday. How important, though, are these Australian Film Awards to the currency of films? I think so. they're, they're very important to the filmmaker. I mean, they're generally a past tense thing, you know, in that the film's generally out and made its name before the uh, award's been given. But for the filmmaker, it helps get a, get a second film up, I think. Mm. Let's say the IF Awards, but I think the AFIs are more important. Yeah. But it's interesting because Kate Shortland, who uh, advised you on yes. the film, she won uh, 13 awards, yeah. I think, for Somersault. And we haven't heard a great deal of her since, although I think she's done some television, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I don't think she... I think she's a very... She's a perfectionist. I think she's working on a script. I think... Um, Sorry to interrupt. She was embarrassed by the fact that they won 13 awards too. She actually thought that was wrong. Because I know I was 
well, Tom White, which I'd worked on, was nominated for it. We lost everything that year. But some, not sour grapes, but no. she honestly was embarrassed by the fact mm. that they won yeah. 13 new awards. That was a surprise. Tom White was ignored uh, when it shouldn't have been. But that's another story. But yeah. that's why I'm interested in the whole currency of awards and how important they are <coughs> to a filmmaker's career. Oh, I think they obviously help, yeah. I mean, I had a friend who got nominated for an Academy Award for a short film and that made a massive difference. But then he made a feature that wasn't good and that... He, you know, he could have chosen a different feature film, but he didn't. So I think awards make a huge difference to people that win them, not to those that don't. You know, we still live in hope. <laughs> and for what it's worth, I was incredibly lucky because the second feature I cut myself was Malcolm, and that actually won everything that year. And so it, all of a sudden, I had a tick beside my name in mm. all the funding bodies. Mm. So it does help. It does and work. I've been nominated ten times now for AFI awards and won three, I think. But sort of. Um, it does really help in that respect. Great. Okay. If there are no more questions, we might end it there. P can you please thank Mark Forstman and Ken Sellows? <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank, thank you. you.